South Sudan in focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza working on this program very much. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan this Monday, October 3rd, 2022. A man dies of a suspected Ebola virus in Central Equatorial State. At the moment, we have five suspects, uh, five alerts that we received in the preparedness of this EVD and uh, one suspect passed on. And 30 South Sudanese students are locked at the country's embassy in the Egyptian capital, Cairo, since last week. The students, they came here knowing that the, the scholarship was fully funded and the parents are not going to, to pay anything. Now, uh, and it so happened that they are being told that the, the scholarship is partial. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Officials from Sudan's Ministry of Health say one person suspected of having Ebola virus died last week in Kajukeji County of Central Equatorial State before his laboratory test results were confirmed. Mabior Kir, Chief of Planning and Information at South Sudan's Public Health Emergency Operations Center, told reporters Sunday the deceased is one of the five suspected Ebola cases the ministry has been investigating this past week. For VOA Newsworker, Simon Wood reports from Juba. Mabiorkir says healthy officials are still trying to confirm whether the unidentified man from Kajukeji County died from Ebola late last week. He says the Ministry of Health has launched surveillance efforts to detect other suspected cases of EVD or Ebola virus disease. At the moment, we have five suspects, uh, five alerts that we received in the preparedness of this EVD and uh, one suspect passed on. The suspect is from Kiri, that is Kangopo in uh, Kajokeji County. Uh, the suspect is 33 years old, uh, males, and ha- have no recent history of traveling to Uganda in these uh, uh, maybe suspected areas of uh, EVD. And uh, other inside stories that the suspect was sick. Kir says alerts are being reported from central, eastern, and western equatorial states. One alert was reported in Yambio, another in Nimle, one in Kajukeji, and two others were reported in Yei. The suspected Ebola cases include a five-year-old girl. Kir says some of the suspected cases have no travel history to Uganda. He says the patients exhibit Ebola-like symptoms of vomiting blood, fever, and nose bleeding. Samples from the suspected cases have been sent to South Africa for examination. The results have yet to be released, Kir said. With active commas continuing between South Sudan and Uganda, Dr. John Rumono, incident manager at South Sudan's Ministry of Health, says the government is stepping up preventive measures by conducting surveillance across parts of the country. Dr. Romono says with some South Sudanese refugees in Uganda returning home and commerce taking place between Uganda and South Sudan along the border, there is a high risk of an Ebola outbreak, which is why South Sudan has stepped up preventive measures such as screening travelers along border crossings and creating awareness. 
Dr. Romono describes how Ebola is transmitted. Its transmission is through direct contact with uh, the affected person and the fluids, body fluids from the from the confirmed uh, patient, like saliva, sweat, tears, urine, feces, blood. Uh, if someone gets uh, into contact with these body fluids, uh, the person will be likely to 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 contract um, Ebola. The Uganda government is battling an Ebola outbreak in its central district of Mubende. According to the New Vision newspaper of Uganda, Uganda's Ministry of Health has reported 35 Ebola cases, including seven deaths. Dr. Rumuno has called on the public to be on alert and report any suspected Ebola-like symptoms to health authorities. If anybody uh, sees a case like this at home in the community, please let the health authorities know. Let the health authorities know. We have a toll-free number, 6666, which we were using for COVID-19. You can call this number anywhere in South Sudan. Medical experts describe Ebola as a deadly virus with initial symptoms that include a sudden fever, intense weakness, martial pain, and a sore throat. Subsequent stages can include vomiting, diarrhea, and in some cases, both internal and external bleeding, known as hemorrhaging. The incubation period can last from two days to three days. For VON News, I'm working Simon Wudu in Juba. Still on the Ebola virus, the World Health Organization and the Ugandan authorities are seeking $18 million to contain the Ebola outbreak in the country for the next three months. The initiative comes as Uganda registers the death of the first health worker, a Tanzanian national, which brings the total number of confirmed cases to 38 with seven deaths. Alima Tomani reports from Kampala. Speaking to the media after a high-level closed-door meeting organized by the World Health Organization or WHO in Kampala, Dr. Jen Rutha Cheng, Uganda's Minister for Health, revealed the first death of a medical worker. On Thursday, the ministry announced that six health workers had been confirmed to have the Ebola Sudan strain and two more were in critical condition. The health worker, a Tanzanian national, was moved to an isolation facility at a hospital in the neighboring district of Fort Poto from Mwenda district where he had handled the first Ebola case. Because of what a chain called some mistakes, more health workers have been exposed to Ebola. And we have lost seven people, unfortunately, and one of them is a medical doctor. It is true that we have 65 health workers who have been exposed. Now all these 65 health workers are under quarantine. The current Ebola Sudan strain so far has affected four districts in Uganda, including Mubende, with the epicenter in Madudu sub-county, Chegegwa, Kasanda, and now the Kagadi district. A chain reveals the main commonality with the four affected districts. People from Madudu ran to these districts because they thought there was witchcraft in Madudu. And they were running away either to find a safe haven or to reach out to relatives to help them treat what to them 
was a strange disease that they did not understand. However, with the various interventions that we have had, the people of Madudu have now understood that it is Ebola and it is not witchcraft. Unaware of what caused the spread of the Ebola Sudan strain will take, there is still no vaccine. Health officials in Uganda, including those from the WHO, are mobilizing and seeking $18 million to control the outbreak. Dr. Jonas Tegen Waldemariam, the WHO representative to Uganda, says they are worried the money being sought might not cover all costs. If we go into the preparedness, we are talking even for the three months, three times or four times that amount. Plus, there are things which we take for granted, assuming the system will provide them. Those are additional costs like transportation, like fuel, like human resources, which we have to consider to, to also fund uh, as we go ahead. The Sudan Ebola virus is less common than the Zaire Ebola virus and there is no current effective vaccine. The Sudan Ebola virus was first reported in southern Sudan in 1976. Although several outbreaks have been reported since then in both Uganda and Sudan, the deadliest outbreak in Uganda was in 2000, claiming more than 200 lives. Uganda's last Ebola outbreak in 2019 was confirmed to be the Zaire Ebola virus. It last reported a Sudan Ebola virus outbreak in 2012. Halima for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. Some South Sudanese students in Cairo have gone on a strike at the country's embassy. The students say since they enrolled in various Egyptian universities under full scholarship last year, they have been enduring hardships. South Sudan's Minister of Higher Education, Gabriel Changson, says he's aware about the standoff at the South Sudan embassy in Cairo. For VOA News, Deng Deng reports from Bor. Student Najangaro says 30 South Sudanese students have been occupying the South Sudan embassy since Thursday, demanding answers from the government of South Sudan as to why they were not told the real status of the scholarship. Arrow says the students are helpless after Egyptian universities throw them out, declaring their scholarships were not fully funded. The students, they came here knowing that the scholarship was fully funded. And the parents are not going to, to pay anything. Now, uh, it so happened that they have been told that the, the scholarship is partial. That means you need to take care of your accommodation and all the other uh, basic needs. So they will try the embassy on Thursday, demanding them that the government of Southland will always speak the truth, that's number one, uh, not to lie. And number two, is that they are demanding the, the scholarship be fully funded. Number three, they are requesting the government of South Sudan so that they have uh, free accommodation only. Student Nakenyaro says the government in Juba is to be blamed for not responding to the dire situation amid the protest at the country's embassy in Cairo. Arrow says angry students attending a number of Egyptian universities came together to protest and say they will continue with the sit-in until their grievances are addressed. So most of them came knowing that they are going to have a fully funded scholarships. But when they came here, nothing of such really exists. No hostel fees being cleared, no monthly stipends. 
So if you are from poor family background to afford to rent, then everything is going to be tough on you. Arrow says students are in a difficult situation after the embassy downscaled their basic needs and locked them inside the embassy's grounds without permission to get food. They have closed the embassy. They have increased even uh, security in the roads. So to make sure that these students are punished, no any passing by by, to, by any black man, either you are from where they thought that you are South Sudanese, you are going to have those students inside. They want to make sure that they have no access to anybody. So this is what they are really doing. Yesterday evening, some students went there to go and collect uh, they collect some foods to go and give to their colleagues, but they didn't make it. Arrow says one student was detained by Egyptian authorities and the others do not know his whereabouts. South Sudan Minister of Higher Education, Gabriel Changson Chang, confirms he is aware of the student protests in Egypt, but declined to comment much beyond that. The, the issue is being handled by higher authorities, especially by external security and the Office of Foreign Affairs. So I don't want to give any uh, statement. Adu Taik, a spokesperson at the office of the South Sudan Minister of Foreign Affairs, says she was not aware of the protests. I'm not aware of that um, issue, but I don't think if that's happening, then the department hasn't made us aware of it yet. Um, but what I will do after lunch, I'll speak with the minister and see what we know about that, and I can give you a, I can give you a statement after that. Joseph Moom, the South Sudan ambassador to Cairo, did not respond to several calls and text messages for comment. This is not the first time that students studying under a scholarship program have occupied the South Sudan embassy in North African country, nor is it the first time for South Sudanese students studying abroad to voice grievances related to the schooling. In February, South Sudanese students on government scholarship at Zeus University in Egypt occupied the embassy in Cairo for four days, demanding the government clear their credit hour arrears. Over the years, students studying in countries like Ethiopia and Zimbabwe have reported a number of academic challenges, with some being barred from graduation due to outstanding tuition fees. In May 2020, seven South Sudanese students nursed wounds after they were reportedly assaulted by Ethiopian police while demanding the coronavirus incentives at the South Sudan embassy in Addis Ababa. In 2017 and again in 2020, students on government scholarship in Zimbabwe camped at South Sudan embassy in Arare over unpaid tuition fees. For VOA News, I am Dengai Deng. In Bor. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, some women in Kapoita County in Eastern Equatorial State receive support from a USAID funded project. Find out why after the break. a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one tell us
us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in Focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one, two, zero, two, six, three, zero, eight, zero, one, one. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. A U.S. aid-funded project is supporting some women in Capoeira in eastern Equatorial State to manage menstrual hygiene. The head of AFIA, Water Sanitation and Hygiene, known as WASH program in South Sudan, says a lack of proper menstrual hygiene education, the stigma, shame associated with administration, and the cost of buying hygiene products is preventing some women and girls in South Sudan from accessing ministerial kits. For VOA News, Sheila Pony reports from Juba. Women sing as they line up at Lukwamur Primary School in Kapweta, North County to receive dignity kits. As part of the kits, most of these women are seeing sanitary parts for the first time. Before this day, most of the thousand women and girls here say they depended on old clothes or animal skins to use during the menstruation. 18 years old, Lonya Lokopir, a mother of four from Kapweta North, says for years she grappled with the challenge of managing her monthly period. I used to cover menstrual blood with soil and dampen the floor with a piece of cloth cut from my local skin skirt and then cover with soil. The day when my menstruation comes, I do things at home. I use the soil fold into a piece of cloth and after that, I smear my oil and now that you have given us dignity kits, I will use the soap to stay clean. Elizabeth Nabai, a mother of three, says sanitary pads are expensive and often inaccessible. She says some girls resort to using pieces of rugs or goat skin, which are often unhygienic and uncomfortable. According to my Toposa culture, before the intervention of the sanitary pads, we used to use the skin height that we sit on them for so long time until when the ministration is done. But sometimes also we go sit at long, we sit like under trees. We dig holes, we sit down for so long until uh, the ministration is done. So our husbands who are caring sometimes kill these small, uh, small goats to get, remove the skin of the goat so that we can cover with our with our private part when we are ministrating. Aside from the physical challenges of dealing with their periods, women here say they must also cope with cultural taboos associated with menstruation. To help women and girls in Kapoeta North improve their menstrual hygiene, the Afia Wash program, with funding from the United States Agency for International Development, recently distributed dignity kits to 500 women. The kits contain reusable pads, a pair of sleepers, and soap. Denise Mwanza, the chief of party for the Afia Wash program, says the lack of education and menstruation, the stigma attached to it, and the cost of buying period products are challenges that women and girls on a monthly basis. Menstrual hygiene management. This, unfortunately, is something which, which is a big challenge. One, you know, menstrual hygiene 
should be a, a woman's uh, pride, uh, you know, to, you know, to have. It should not be something that is uh, shameful because you have girls using all sorts of uh, materials, you know, cloth material, and some some of them even told you of using sand to clean themselves. This, I think, is something we should not be accepted in this uh, in this generation. This does not even make the girl look forward to uh, you know to having menstrual period. It's like, and so you have situations where because of lack of appropriate uh, ways of addressing their menstrual hygiene, uh, uh, school-going girls uh, end up uh, missing a week or so, uh, you know, in a month, and at the end you find that they even end up uh, dropping out of school. Lonya Lokopin says most women in her community don't have soap or pads before receiving the kids. When I use pads and soap, that will keep me clean and I will keep healthy. The managers of the Afia Wash program says all girls should receive menstrual education before they get their first period and all women and girls should have access to water and private toilets. For VOA News, I am Sheila Pony in Juba. The United Nations Humanitarian Office in Somalia says the country is still teetering on the edge of famine. Ian Ridley is the head of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, known as OCHA, in Somalia. He says forecasts indicate that the rainy season from October to December is going to fail. He tells reporter Harun Maruf of VOA Somali Service that the humanitarian community is scaling up its support to the government to ensure that farming is averted. The first question I'm going to ask you is give us uh, uh, the latest about the humanitarian situation in the country. Last time you mentioned that there is a potential of farming uh, sometime between October and December. Where do things stand now? Yes, so we're right now at the beginning of October and the drought continues to bite. So we have almost 8 million people in need and over a million people who've been displaced. Uh, And this is because four consecutive rainy seasons have failed, going back to October 2020. Now we're at the beginning of the current rainy season, so I think we're all hoping and praying that the rains will come. Uh, But based on the the recent patterns, I think the weather forecasts and the climatologists are telling us there's a a high probability that this next rainy season from October to December uh, will fail. So that increases uh, the risk of famine. And I would say we are teetering on the edge of famine, particularly in Baidoa and Burhakaba, and particularly amongst IDPs in, in Baidoa. So this was also uh, the the epicenter, if you like, of the drought in 2011. Many lives were lost there. It was also the epicenter of the crisis in, in 2017. So we're really focusing all our efforts uh, on those areas, on Baidora and Bohakaba districts. Uh, the humanitarian community is, is really scaling up, scaling up in support of the government to support people there to, to, to ensure that we can avert famine. And how is that delivery of humanitarian assistance taking place? Are you confident that this uh, assistance could be delivered in time to avert or do you think it will be very challenging? So the scale-up of the humanitarian response uh, over the last few weeks has been impressive. 
and a lot of it is uh, focused on Baidoa and Bohakaba. So I think we're confident that particularly for the people in the IDP sites that are easy to reach, uh, we can reach them with humanitarian assistance. I think what we're concerned about are uh, people in the rural areas that are more difficult to reach, uh, areas that are under the control of non-state armed groups, Al-Shabaab specifically. Uh, we're concerned about those areas. Uh, but we must continue to push uh, out of the uh, cities and towns into the rural areas uh, and, and reach as many people as possible. So the United Nations, the, the NGOs, I would say the government, the, the private sector, uh, the religious community, uh, everybody is, is coming together to do just that. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Of the many atrocities committed during Putin's full-scale war against Ukraine, some of the most grievous relate to Russia's filtration operations. Filtration is the anodyne word describing a massive operation the Kremlin has launched to intimidate, imprison, forcibly deport or disappear those Ukrainian citizens that Moscow decides could be a threat to its imperial ambitions to control and then annex Ukraine's territory. A recent report by the Yale Humanitarian Research Lab identified 21 filtration-related facilities in the Donetsk Oblast alone. The report identified four types of facilities, those used for registration, holding, interrogation, and long-term detention. There are also checkpoints along main thoroughfares where Ukrainian civilians fleeing from Russia-controlled areas are subjected to filtration, and cases where civilians are simply rounded up and forcibly taken to filtration facilities. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield noted estimates from a variety of sources including the Russian government indicate that Russian authorities have interrogated, detained, forcibly deported between 900,000 and 1.6 million Ukrainian citizens from their homes to Russia, often to isolated regions in the Far East. She also said estimates are that thousands of children have been subject to filtration, some separated from their families and taken from orphanages before being put up for adoption in Russia. Why is this filtration being done, along with other measures the Kremlin is taking in the areas of Ukraine currently held by Russia's forces, the imposition of Russia's educational curriculum in schools, attempts to get Ukrainian citizens to apply for Russian Federation passports? The reason is simple, said Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, to prepare for an attempted annexation. This effort to fabricate these facts on the ground is the predicate to sham referenda. It is part of the Russian playbook for Ukraine that we've been warning council members about since the beginning of the war. As the State Department has noted, the unlawful transfer and deportation of protected persons is a grave breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention on the Protection of Civilians and constitutes a war crime. State Department Principal Deputy Spokesperson Vidant Patel said, We demand Russia halt its filtration operations immediately. We call on the global community to join us in condemning this practice and calling for humanitarian access to be granted. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 
That's all we prepared for you this Monday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. And for world news, go to voanews.com. If you miss this broadcast, go to voanews.com forward slash South Sudan. When I leave you with Emmanuel Kembe and the song Binia Kakwa. Listening to Emmanuel Kembe and the song Binia Kakwa. I'm your host, John Tanza in Washington. Thanks for taking time to be with us. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Deep